cryptographic bugs, sensible cybersecurity regulations, a cryptocurrency conundrum, and a new Firefox sandbox. All that and more on the Naked Security Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. I am Doug. He is Paul. I wouldn't have said conundrum, Doug. I might have said catastrophe or yeah. business as usual. Trying to let's be leave some... that till later, shall we? <laughs> Slightly diplomatic, but yeah, yeah. it's uh, catastrophe probably would have been better. You yeah. know what's so coming. Stay tuned for that one. <laughs> stay tuned for that one. Well, we like to start the show with a fun fact, and the fun fact for this week is on its patent application, the name for the computer mouse was the not quite as succinct XY position indicator for a display system. When asked about the origin of the mouse name, its inventor, Douglas Engelbart, recalled, it just looked like a mouse with a tail, and we all called it that. And the other name to remember there is, of course, Bill English, who is essentially, you could say, the co-inventor. So Engelbart came up with the idea of the mouse based on, a, I think, a device called a planimeter, which had fascinated him when he was a kid. And he went to Bill English, his colleague, and said, can you build one of these? And apparently it was carved out of mahogany. You've seen the pics, Doug. It's lovely, it's, yes. It's quite chunky. Mm-hmm. And is it true, I think you'd said this on a previous podcast, that they had the cable coming out of the wrong side at first? They did. And they yeah, and out of the, kept getting the in the wrist way. end first, yes. And when they flipped it round, obviously it's a tail. It can only be mm-hmm. a mouse. <laughs> yes, well, thank you for that, Mr. Engelbart. Despite the uh, instances of repetitive stress injury and carpal tunnel syndrome, other than that, the mouse has gone swimmingly. It is an aptly named peripheral, and uh, speaking of things that are aptly named, we have a Mozilla bug called Big Sig. So uh, let us wonder what that could be about. Strictly speaking, it's CVE-2021-43527. It was found by well-known serial bug hunting expert from Google, Tavis Ormondy, and it was an old-school buffer overflow that nobody had noticed for years and years and years inside the cryptographic library called NSS, short for Network Security Services. Mozilla has always used that in all of its products instead of using something like OpenSSL, which many of our listeners will know about, and instead of using the native implementations on each operating system, because Microsoft has its S-channel, secure channel, Apple has secure transport, but Mozilla, wherever it can, it said we're going to stick with this one particular library. And they're not the only organization to use it. There actually turns out there are quite a few other products that have included this. There's a point when it allocates a lump of an area in memory to store all the data it needs to do the signature verification. And one of the things you need when you're verifying a signature is a public key. The biggest key you'd ever need is surely going to be RSA 16 kilobits, which nobody really needs because it's way bigger than you need even today to be secure. It's very time consuming to create those keys. It's bound to be big enough, Doug. So it's essentially, there's a size limit to the key. The keys in the wild, even the biggest ones that we've typically seen from RSA are a a quarter of the maximum size. But if you put, if you... If you send over a key that's bigger than the allotted size, there's no size check to say this key is too big. There is now. <laughs> <laughs> there's a function added. 
sadly, as Tevis Ormandy pointed out, the data that immediately follows in memory, in other words, the stuff that's going to get overwritten, does include what are called function pointers. In other words, they are data objects that determine how the program behaves, where it goes in memory to execute code in the future. And when you get an overwrite like that, A, a crash is almost guaranteed, and B, there is always a possibility because you can decide how to deviate the program at the other end that you could get remote code execution. That answers the who cares question that I was going to ask uh, in a more tactful way. But Let's go back to that who cares. Really, what we've answered is why care? The who cares is, well, obviously, anybody using Firefox, which is probably the best known and most widely used Mozilla product, except that for reasons that I don't fully understand and weren't disclosed by Mozilla, the one product that just happens not to be vulnerable to this, maybe it does the size <laughs> check somewhere else, is Firefox. Yeah. Good mm -hmm. news. However, even in their own security advisory, the Mozilla team members explicitly listed Thunderbird, which is Mozilla's email client, Evolution, which is a, an open source calendaring app that I think a lot of Linux desktop users probably have, and a document viewer widely used on Linux called Evince. And perhaps the most concerning, LibreOffice, probably the most popular free and open source alternative to Microsoft Office that not only uses NSS, at least on Windows, it always includes its own version of the DLL where the bug exists. So if you were using LibreOffice last week when the bug notification came, you probably ignored it because you thought Mozilla doesn't affect me. LibreOffice has got nothing to do with them. Turns out that you do need to upgrade if you're using LibreOffice. They have now put out an update. 7.2.4 is what you want. So just searching my own system here, would you say the nss3.dll file that I found in my Tor browser that hasn't been modified since 1999, would that be something I might want to look into? That's worrying because when I checked my Tor browser version, it didn't have the latest lib nss3.so, but it had a more recent one than 1999. Yeah, so that timestamp uh... may be wrong. <laughs> maybe re-download Tor, Doug, and see how you Yeah, maybe I'll do that. It's been, it's been quite a while since I've uh, used that or updated it. Yes, of all the browsers that you probably want to avoid <laughs> having <laughs> exploitable, privacy-violating holes yep. in, <laughs> Tor may be the one that you start Might be with. <laughs> right at the top of that list, actually, yeah. Depending on what so, you're using it for. I will add that to my to-do list. If you'd like to read more and see some sample code you can use to check the versions of your systems, that article is called Mozilla Patches Critical Big Sig Cryptographic Bug. Here's how to track it down and fix it. And on the theme of fixing things, this seems like sensible legislation to <laughs> protect consumers from lazy, lazy uh, security in IoT devices. That's correct, Doug. Uh, the U.S. was probably the first country to try and get serious about this. And of course, the US can be very influential when it comes to telling device manufacturers, thou shalt do the right thing without having laws that are unpopular, because the US can just go, okay, you can do what you like, but if you wish to sell to the federal government, here are the standards that we've decided we want you to stick to. They can influence this without saying, we're going to have a law that applies to everybody. They're just saying, you can sell, but you can't sell where the real money is into the federal market. 
This is the UK, where the government doesn't quite have that kind of purchasing power, particularly for IoT devices. So they've they've been dancing around this for a couple of years, and they've got a, a bill. Remember, a bill is what it's called before it actually gets enacted in Parliament and then gets royal assent. So it means it's a proposed legislation like in the US, and it's called PSTI, Product, Security and Telecommunications Infrastructure. And I admit, when I first saw that, I thought, uh-oh, here we go. It's going to be about backdooring encryption all over again, mm-hmm. telecoms. Quite the opposite. It's basically saying we're just going to set three minimum things. Must be at least this tool to go on the ride if you want to sell IoT devices. It's still a long way off. It still has to become an act, get its royal assent. And then apparently they're talking about having a 12-month sunrise period while you get your acting gear. Tell us what you think of these, Doug. There are three simple things that they want you to bring to the party. They start out very simple and get slightly more complex, but not really that hard. I mean, the first one is just a no-brainer. Default passwords. Can't have them. The problem it solves is someone like me, back when I was getting interested in cybersecurity, I shouldn't have been able to sit in a coffee shop and find a Linksys router and know that the username was admin and the password was admin. And most people don't change that because they don't know anything about that when they're setting up their router. Or they know perfectly well about it and it warns them right at the end. And it says, at some future time, you may want to change this. And they go, that is a true statement, but doesn't make you do it, does it? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. If you have followed Douglas Armouth's advice and got a password manager, 10 seconds work to do it. Yes. And then when your device magically starts working, it is at least a bit different from everybody else's. So that's a start. No default passwords. Okay. And the next one, slightly more complicated, but still important, a reliable way to disclose vulnerabilities to you if you're a company. You need to be able to take those and act upon them. It's not that difficult. We spoke about it, didn't we, on the podcast not long ago. Your website name, forward slash security. Easy. And people go there, and there it says, here's how you can tell us. I understand people's frustration in some cases, where they literally cannot send a bug report that they don't even want money for. They just would love to tell somebody and can't. How do you police that? I've no idea. But at least they're saying, come on, guys. How hard is it to have a standardized email address that actually works? It's also probably not a bad place to put almost a, much like you'd find the ingredients on the side of a box of food. That's You put your security ingredients on the security page to tell people how you are securing your devices in the first place. Here's what we're doing. Here's how to contact us. Here's what to look for in a bug report. Yes, Chester and I spoke about that in a recent podcast, I think when you were on vacation, Doug, about moves in the US to require hardware and software manufacturers to provide, if you like, a security bill of materials. I think here, this is a baby step that Mm -hmm. leads to the possibility of actually knowing what's in your product. doesn't seem too much to ask, does it? It does not. Okay, so the third item on this list, so we talked about no universal default passwords, a reasonable way to disclose vulnerabilities. The third thing, this might be the simplest, it's just a probably a resourcing issue for most companies is you need to tell your buyers how long you're going to provide security fixes for the products that they're buying. I suspect that will be the most controversial with manufacturers because I go, well, you know, we don't know. It depends. Like we might not sell many of that device and then we make another one and that sells brilliantly and we don't have to put the same amount of security effort into both of them. 
that's where I can envisage manufacturers pushing back on the grounds of cheapness. And I think that will become an ever-increasing issue, or I hope it will, for environmental reasons as well. I think it was on that same podcast with Chester where he was describing some IoT hacking research he did several years ago. So he went out and he bought all these devices, light bulbs and this and that, the other. Some of them were out of support before he even opened the box. He has these internet-enabled light bulbs. And he said they're quite nice, but basically they're all stuck on purple <laughs> when I was playing around with controlling them. And there isn't even a way that you could connect to it locally and reprogram it. It's just basically lost yeah. in space. Of course, the critics of this law say you need more teeth than that because all that's going to happen is that manufacturers, they'll flood the market with a cheap device and then they'll dissolve that company or come back with a new one. And then they'll let their vendors say, oh, sorry, we can't help you with updates. The manufacturer's out of business. I'm sure that we already have laws that protect consumers from people deliberately folding their company in order to evade regulations. So policing this is obviously going to be the hard thing, but at least it's waving some placards in the face of the IoT marketplace. In the discussion that they've got about this bill, the government has come up with you know, some examples, and I think that it was only one in five of the vendors that they surveyed while they were deciding what they needed in this bill, had any sort of vulnerability disclosure process. Mm -hmm. If you don't have a vulnerability disclosure process, then you can't have any commitment to upgrades because you go, oh, I've done all the upgrades I think we need. Right. But 50 people have been trying to tell you about 49 different vulnerabilities. It's amazing how complicated this simple thing gets when or if you are dealing with a part of the market that is determined not to comply. Yep, we will uh, keep an eye on that. Lots of great comments on the article, so head on over there if you want to read and reply. That is called IoT Devices Must Protect Consumers from Cyber Harm, says UK government on nakedsecurity.sophos.com. It is time for This Week in Tech History. Well, we talked about the handy-dandy mouse earlier in the show. And this week, on December 9th, 1968, the mouse's inventor, Douglas Engelbart, gave the first public demo of the mouse to a crowd of about 1,000 at a computing conference. The mouse demo was part of a longer 90-minute presentation that also touched on subjects such as hypertext and video conferencing. In fact, the mouse demo may have almost been something of an afterthought. The main presentation was for a, quote, computer-based, interactive, multi-console display system for investigating principles by which interactive computer aids can augment intellectual capability, end quote. So it sounds like the early, early days of... AI or augmented That's reality. That's when press releases were press releases, Doug. Oh, yes, sir. Wowee! And Whoa. all with capital letters. That is quite a title. Basically, it was, in 50 years, I jolly well hope there's an internet. Try and make it happen, guys. <laughs> yeah, there was, uh, I saw the flyer. There's a photo of the flyer for this speech. They said that there will be a demo room available where you can, because they were basically streaming this presentation to a remote yeah, uh, location in far away. Yeah, how about that? The mother of all demos, it is now known as. And you can find the whole thing on YouTube. When you think, oh, well, that's obvious, it jolly well wasn't obvious in 1968. Exactly. And thanks to pioneering technologies such as that, we have things like cryptocurrency and the ability to sell some of it and buy some of it 
at the same time while not actually selling any of it and just making it free money, right, Paul? Is that how it works in this story? Cryptocurrency company catastrophe. Who would have thought? Mono X is the company in this case. As recently, I think the 23rd of November, they weren't quite live as far as I know. They have a blog article from that date. And they're saying, we're not trading publicly yet, but we're nearly there. And we're going to revolutionize decentralized finance. We're going to open up to everybody. We've had three software audits. We've been live testing for three months. We're ready to go. And sadly, it already looks as though the roof has caved in. Because like you said, they allowed you to trade the MonoX token. And it turned out that if you just withdrew the money from yourself and paid it back to yourself, then, and it, it really does seem to be as simple as this. They did the subtraction of the amount that was taken out of your balance, but they didn't commit that yet. And then they took the balance you had before the subtraction and they added in the new amount and that's what got finalised. So you basically got the plus, minus a fee, I suppose, without the minus going through. So apparently somebody just wrote a contract that did a load of transactions with a script in a loop that sold their own tokens to themselves over and over again, accumulating value. And then <laughs> once they've got all the value available, they went, let's spend it. And they mopped up by buying a whole load of other crypto coins and trying to cash them out. $31 million later. Oh, dear. Unreal. Yes. Blunders can be expensive. Just because you've had a software audit and you've done a bit of testing doesn't mean that someone isn't ready for you. The price of not losing your $31 million is eternal vigilance. <laughs> that, that's the problem, is it? It's a $31 million mistake. It's good to catch it early like this, but uh, not to the tune of $31 million. So they're yeah. talking about either getting the authorities involved and or they've made a plea to the attacker saying, please give us our money back. Yes. Please. I'm guessing that they're remembering that Poly Networks hack that we spoke about mm -hmm. a few weeks back, where somebody pinched $600 million, if you don't mind, and then started bragging about it. And then they ended up being nice to the person and calling him, what do they call him, Mr. White Hat? Mm -hmm. And, oh, you can keep half a million, but please give us the rest back. Lo and behold, they got almost all of it back. So I think that Mono X, they're kind of hoping that the person will do the same thing. I suspect they're dreaming, Doug, because by all accounts of people who've been tracking this, at least some of the money that whoever it was made off with has already been shoved through what's called a tumbler. You know, one of those crypto coin exchanges that does a whole load of redundant loopy, bloopy transactions that mixes coins together so they can't easily be traced back. So it's a wait and see. They did say please, and the power of please got Poly Networks off the hook, so we'll keep an eye on this uh, story. But if you want to read up on the initial ramifications, that article is called Cryptocurrency Startup Fails to Subtract Before Adding Loses $31 million. On NakedSecurity.Sophos.com and our final story of the day, Firefox, a new update. Oh, yes. A lot of fixes and a new fun sandbox. That's correct, Doug. There's a whole load of bugs fixed, security holes, as you would expect. Mozilla are pretty good at that. So there are possible remote code execution holes, though nobody knows how to exploit them yet that we know of. There are components that didn't uninstall correctly, leaving behind bits even after you'd removed them. There were some tricks that could allow a website to figure out which apps you had installed on your computer. And that information was not supposed to leak out because every little bit helps crooks mapping your network. 
I'm understanding there's also an interesting bug where an attacker could have a web page that made your cursor appear in the wrong place. And that sounds like an annoyance, doesn't it? Except that if the crooks can get you to think you're clicking on no, cancel, definitely do not do this, when in fact you are clicking on like this very much indeed, that could be a serious security <laughs> on. So they fixed all that stuff. So go to help about and check you've got the latest Firefox. If you're on the Bleeding Edge version, it should be 95.0 from Tuesday of this week. The other thing they've done, as you say, they've introduced, if you like, yet another sandboxing technology into Firefox. It's called RLBox. And I searched high and low, left and right, and I couldn't find who uh, or what RL was. So I'm assuming mm. it just means runtime library. Runtime, yeah. Run, I was going to say, <laughs> I'm yeah, guessing. Runtime. It's an interesting technology for the programmers amongst our listeners. It allows you to separate an application from the shared libraries it loads. So that in Windows, that's something like a DLL. In Linux or Unix, it would be a .so, shared object file. On Mac OS, they're usually called .dilib, dynamic library. And the idea is those are program fragments, if you like, that you suck into memory at runtime. So you don't need to have them built into the program. That way, if you don't need a video player, then it doesn't have to be in memory with the program. But the whole problem with a shared library is when you load into memory, it interacts with the rest of your code as though it had been compiled right into the application in the first place. So they're what's called in-process libraries. In other words, once you're using a shared library, it's very hard to say, oh, well, I want to load the shared library, but I want to run it in a completely separate operating system process where it has its own memory space. It can't do whatever it wants. It can't misbehave and start peeking on other web pages already in memory in the main app. So a shared library essentially becomes part of the app. And if you want to have two processes that run separately, can I have to design your app like that in the first place or go and do an awful lot of retrofitting? And my understanding is what they've tried to do with RLBox is they've provided a way that you can load a shared library, but it gets, if you like, put into a, a little safe space of its own. And then the RLBox sandbox manages the function calls, the subroutine calls that go between the main program and this shared library. So they're no longer quite as tightly coupled memory and security wise as they otherwise would have been. And you have to fiddle with your program a bit, but you don't have to go and rip the whole thing apart and start again. So it's a way of retrofitting security where previously that would have been very difficult indeed. So far, it's only a few things that get dealt with in this way. They've got a part of the font rendering process separated. They have the spelling checker that's built into Firefox. That's separated. And anything to do with playing OG format files. So that's all they've done so far. It's not a lot, but it's a start. And apparently in the next month, they will add this separation for XML file parsing, which is another rich source of bugs in any applications that process XML files, and also a more general protection for font rendering. Many, if not most, websites these days don't rely on the fonts that you've set in your browser. They actually say, no, I want you to use this cool-looking font that I chose, and they actually package the fonts into the web page and send them across, and the, the format's called WOF, Web Open Font Format or something like that. And of course, parsing fonts, which come from an untrusted source, is really, really complicated. 
So if you have a bug in the font processing, it means somebody could use a booby trap font to take over a web page and suck data out of it. And that's coming next. So it's a baby steps start, but in my opinion, it is both an interesting and an important one. Very cool. Okay, so you can download the latest Firefox or head over to Naked Security and read this article called Firefox Update Brings a Whole New Sort of Security Sandbox. And if that doesn't work for you, Doug... <laughs> download links. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I did a check, actually, and the Firefox that I was running while I was writing that article, I checked how many shared libraries are actually loaded 205. <laughs> So those are things over and above what was compiled into the program itself. Links, 14. Wow. So how times change? Still in development. Well, it is time for our oh no. This could almost be termed an, a no-no. <laughs> On Reddit, user CyberGuy writes, I work for an MSP and the other day I had a client report that multiple computers couldn't print. I connected one of the devices and tried to ping the printer and was unsuccessful. I then tried to ping the print server and was also unsuccessful. I thought this was odd because the user wasn't remote. They were sitting maybe 20 feet away from their wireless access point. I decided to hit the gateway and it almost immediately dawned on me what the problem was. This client uses ubiquity access points. And upon accessing the web management portal, I was greeted by a login page for Netgear. I called the client and asked if they possibly knew why this device was connected to a Netgear access point. The client told me, Yeah, Sally the receptionist brought that in two weeks ago because her internet was running slow. I was stunned. They decided to allow a low-level employee to bring in their own wireless access point from home, plug it in, and allow half of the users to connect to it. So as I said, a no-no. She actually plugged it into a socket. And, and then all the people around her were connected to it for internet. Oh, because word got print. around, hey, Sally's access point's yeah, really cool. This is faster, yeah. <laughs> the thing is, why would it be faster? Probably yeah. it's, hey, it only has half the restrictions. <laughs> exactly, yeah. All the social media sites that are normally banned. <laughs> and yes. online gaming downloads. So 10 out of 10 for initiative. Yes. Three and a half out of 10 for cyber security and i can tell you as a as a former msp myself without even looking up the default username for a netgear router is admin and the default password is password so if those hadn't been changed big trouble well if you have a, an oh no or a no no you'd like to submit we'd love to read on the podcast <laughs> no, no. you can email <laughs> tips at sophos.com you can comment on any one of our articles or hit us up on social at Naked Security. That is our show for today. Thanks very much for listening. For Paul Ducklin, I'm Doug Ameth reminding you, until next time, to stay, stay secure. secure.